Black Warriors, Tansei Sego, Ani Buju, Nin Deluisi, Pam Palmeter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our languages, cultures, traditions, and practices. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And historically, that has meant working in political confederacies and alliances with a broad range of Indigenous nations. And since contact, that's also meant forming very strong political and social alliances with other groups, like the Black community, for example. We've allied for the purposes of protecting human rights, advancing social justice and earth justice for the benefit of everybody. And that's what's key to any of our social movements is a strong but respectful solidarity alliances. In June and July, we saw massive public protests, rallies and marches against police racism, brutality and killings of black and indigenous peoples. But not unsurprisingly, these marches and protests, which were peaceful, were met with the very horrific acts of police brutality that we have been talking about for centuries. And while the media sometimes tried to portray the people as the problem, Black and Indigenous voices have united in solidarity to push back on that rhetoric. And one of those powerful voices and incredibly strong allies is Elle Jones. She's not only a powerful voice in the black community, but she has worked in solidarity with indigenous peoples to help educate the public and advocate for justice. And she's a literal powerhouse whose words are literally an art form, a spoken word artist and poet. She's Halifax's fifth poet laureate and a national spoken word champion. And she currently teaches as well. Every time I hear her speak, I'm not only moved by her passion and wisdom, but I'm always re-inspired to take action. I literally want to jump out of my seat and go do something. <laughs> An incredible person. I feel so honored to know her. Welcome to the show, Elle. Well, thank you, Pam. That was such a nice intro, but also already in the intro, you've covered so much that's important. So thank you so much for having me. I'm blessed to be here. Well, thank you. And I know you have so much to share. And, and what I want to do really with this show is help educate people, assuming that our podcast listeners or YouTube viewers might not have all of the really important background. They might only have seen what's been in the media headlines. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a bit of history of, you know, the systemic racism against the Black community in Canada. Yeah, so obviously it's always important when we talk about so-called Canada to always acknowledge and begin with and continually understand the ongoing genocide of Indigenous people, the theft of, of land and resources. Obviously you talk about this all the time. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I think it's really important for Black people to also assert that and to understand that enslavement um, comes out of this. So if we look at, for example, um, Bartolo de de las Casas, who's a uh, Spanish guy who's with, a, he's actually a priest for the Spanish when they're going into the, the so-called Americas. And he details what he, the destruction of the Indies is what he calls it. Um, and of course we know that those are the countries which are now the Caribbean countries that our people 
live in. So we understand that the enslavement of black people for labor that takes place in the Caribbean is directly related to this genocide of the original population. Um, the Carib people, the Arawak people, the Taino people, you know, that only exist in the most case now through the bloodlines of African people who are brought in and, and uh, you know, mixed with those people. So we know right away that there's a direct connection between the genocide of indigenous people and the enslavement of black people. Quite literally, uh, oh no, we killed these people. Like, let's find other people. What about those people? They're not human beings. So that's a really important connection to always understand that anti-black racism takes place against this backdrop of indigenous genocide because of course, unlike indigenous people where there was no contact, there was contact between Africans and Europe. So what changes, right? What changes between the medieval period where you see images of black Madonnas in churches? What changes in the, you know, St. Augustine, who's an African saint, right? His mother is black, his mother Monica is black. Um, what changes when Lucius Septimius Severus is an emperor of Rome in the first century and is African? So we know that it's not that there was something inherently about black people that led to enslavement. We know that there's a historical process and an ideology and forces. And again, that's really important. It's taking place as this so-called discovery of the new world happens, as this genocide of indigenous people, as the theft of those resources is happening, that also is accompanied with this rise of capitalism and racism that goes along with it, that then is particularly directed upon black people as the labor. So Eric Williams, for example, talks about this in a really good book, Capitalism and Slavery, um, where he understands the relationship between capitalism and racism and that they, they're outgrowths, right? So racism comes out of this. So fundamentally, our bodies are taken for labor. And that still is going on now. So when we talk about cultural appropriation, for example, if people want an up-to-date example, when we say like, why can the products of black people be taken from us? It's because we are commodities and property and we always have been. Um, and that's not just in the Caribbean, it's not just in America, it's in Canada. So we understand, for example, that slavery existed in Canada, in Montreal, both indigenous people and black people were enslaved. And many people not only don't know the history of black enslavement, but don't know that indigenous people were enslaved in Canada as well. Um, Montreal, in fact, had more enslaved people in their population in like the early 1700s, late 1600s than white people. So you had black people and indigenous people. And in fact, there's what some people have called a reverse underground railroad where people are going from Montreal in the British Empire where there's slavery into the northern United States where like they're not being pursued, right? So um, people are actually leaving Canada to get away from slavery, something that of course is never told in our narrative where we always believe that we were the depot for the Underground Railroad, right? This is the, the end, the heaven at the end of the Underground Railroad. And it's not true. We had slavery for longer than we haven't had slavery. And that's something that people don't know. In Nova Scotia and Mi'kma'i, um, of course, there was enslavement of black people in this province. And when people came here, so ostensibly were freed, particularly the black loyalists who are offered freedom in return to fighting for the British crown during the Revolutionary War, many of those people are effectively re-enslaved, for example, um, and end up basically in an indentured servitude, which is just like slavery. So we know that that existed. Shelburne, um, that area, Birchtown, Shelburne, was actually burned down in what's the first recorded race riots in, Nova, in uh, North America. Um, so the white population basically burns out the black people and burns down their property and like engages in mob violence for 10 days. Um, you know, and that's just the early histories. And we can go through the histories of segregation, uh, segregated schools that persisted in this province well into the 1950s and effectively until 1983, um, which is when the last school closes. Um, of course, like you can go in the graveyards and see like the colored section in the graveyards in Nova Scotia. Um, like by the back wall, there's like the Chinese section and then like the colored section. Um, 
So, you know, we can look at all of these historical incidences and then, of course, today. So we understand that none of this is just some kind of academic history that, oh, yeah, okay, I read 10 books, like, now I know this. This is ongoing, right? That we still live in communities uh, where there's environmental racism, where 30% of the Black and Indigenous communities in this province are located within, like, one to three kilometers of some kind of environmental disaster, a dump, like, sewage plant, uh, you know, this molten steel, like whatever it is that's coming off that, you know, our communities are located by. We know that we still have lower educational access and we know that our kids are heavily suspended in discipline, which of course then leads into the prison system um, and to being criminalized. We know that we have less access to healthcare. We saw during COVID uh, in the United States, they kept race-based data and black people, of course, astronomically made up those numbers. Um, we don't keep those numbers in Canada, but common sense tells us that we know indigenous black people um, people who have already um, lower health outcomes due to racism and being stripped of resources are also going to experience COVID more. And we saw a different reaction, for example, when COVID was in the Black community of North Preston, where the premier said that we were reckless and selfish and partying, and that's why we were spreading COVID. So even though COVID was brought by white people traveling, you know, that was fine. But the minute black people got COVID, it became self-evident that we were contaminating the rest of the communities and we need to be contained, which is the logic of anti-blackness. So going back from slavery, and this is the last, and then I'll let you ask something else. <laughs> but you know, in talking about slavery, one of the things we understand is that um, an ideology that comes out of slavery is the notion that black bodies need to be disciplined and controlled. And this, of course, comes from the logic of slavery. I mean, you've taken us, white people have kidnapped us, are doing us brutality every single day. And you can look at things like the code noir that the French actually developed, which is like coding out, this is how many lashes you get when you eat sugar. You know, this is like the torture and often sexually sadistic practices that are being used to punish black people. Like this is law, this isn't just an anomaly. This isn't like, oh, 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 some people are bad people. This is coded law, right? Like this is what the law says. Um, so that, that when you're torturing us and beating us and mass industrial raping us and all these things that are obviously violent to talk about, in the white imagination, we become violent. So the fear is that I've done this to these people and they will rise up. And in a plantation situation, there's more of us than there are of them. So what you do is, what, white, what the white imagination does is protect, project onto black people that we're actually the violent ones. And therefore we need to be controlled and disciplined. And this torture they're doing to us is actually necessary um, it both Christianizes us and also otherwise would be out here raping people and burning things down, right? And that ideology still sticks post-enslavement and it becomes a logic of policing. So we need to be policed because if we're left to ourselves, we will run around, we will rape people, we will burn things down, we will rob, we will kill, black on black crime, which doesn't exist. Um, you know, all of these mythologies become part of how we're seen. And that still is maintained by our communities need to be controlled, we could spread contamination. Um, you know, if, if we're not kept disciplined, then what, who knows what we'll do, right? And that goes straight into even the notion of these protests where there was all this idea that nonviolent and peaceful had to be appended because somehow we're naturally violent and unpeaceful, right? Yeah, no, and, and I'm so glad you raised, you know, those last few issues because there's, 
it's so ingrained. And that's the thing about systemic racism is that, you know, even individuals will think, you know, well, I'm very conscious about human rights, so I'm not racist. But the very same people who, if they see people, Black or Indigenous people speaking out, strong voices, angry voices, crying voices and sad voices, the response is, well, now you're just turning off, you know, public support. Like, you, you need to calm down. You need to be nicer. Why don't you soften your message and, you know, really accept that, you know, everything's not going to change overnight. You need to be patient and important first steps. And, oh, my gosh, it's my pet peeve every time I hear that. And I'm like, how much of a challenge do you think it is in this whole, you know, necessary act of educating the public that this is, you know, what the wall that we're met with. And of course, there's no way around that, right? So, and Black and Indigenous people, many of, we're stereotyped differently. We don't have the same history. It'd be a mistake to, to collapse us and say, yeah. well, it's all the same thing. We know that colonization is specific. And, but there's things that are shared as well because we are all colonized people. And some of those things are shared between Black and Indigenous people. And one of which is that we're always assumed to be less intellectual. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, you know, we're stupid, but then if we read too many books, then it's like, oh my God, why are you so elitist and angry? So, you know, it's also that you can never win as a human being, and particularly as a woman, right? That there's that added layer of misogynoir um, of, like, I mean, there's nothing people hate more than like an educated, articulate black or indigenous person. So yeah, I mean, that, the sort of funny thing about it is we're all, I always say this, like, we ain't shit, and we're also everything at the same time, right? Like, <laughs> This is always the idea that when it's when the narrative suits them, we're all powerful and our radical thoughts are destroying the world, but also we ain't shit and don't have to be listened to ever. Yeah. And we're uneducated and why don't we go and take care of our kids and you know, all of that at the same time, which is of course the history of whiteness. Because if you look at the construction of whiteness, whiteness constructs this Noel Ignatiev says this, uh, whiteness constructs itself as an industrial identity. Um, and that's what makes white people civilized, but there's a mixed nostalgia and disgust for everything that white people feel they have lost. So this is where you get the nostalgia for indigenous people. Like you guys like forest elves, like yeah. you care for the environment. So, so peaceful, like environmentalists, but also of course the disgust of your primitive savages and why are you blocking the railroad? And like for black people, it's the same thing. We have so much rhythm, like we're so cool. We have this access to something that's authentic, but at the same time, of course, we're violent and criminal and like frightening and you know, you need to, clutch your person across the street, right? So this is always at the heart of colonialism, a desire towards us and a disgust towards us. And of course that's the desire that like, I just want to wear your headdress, but you know, I, I don't love you. I, I, want, I want your hoop earrings, I want your braids, but not you. Like you can go die in the street or in the prison. And then if we could just strip the things we like from you, your hair, your lips, your, your jewelry, then it would all be good, right? So, um, this is sort of the ongoing relationship. And when we understand that, of course, it helps us to understand how, for example, black people can have created every major culture of the 20th century in terms of music, you know, but also can be filling up the prison at the same time. Like, how does that work? But that's the answer. Yeah, well, and the thing about white superiority, um, it's, it doesn't leave space for anybody else. It's not just a ranking system, but we can't be poor and we can't be rich we can't be angry, but we can't be happy. Like there's no space for us to be. And, yeah, and that's we got really a job, it's affirmative action. Yeah. Right? And then if yeah. we don't have a job, look at us, we're lazy. We don't want jobs. We just want yeah, to like, there's, yeah. there's, there's no winning in it. And one of the other things, you know, that you were And then they'll be about, like, well, you're not really indigenous. You're not yeah. really 
So oh, then yeah, it's like, right. actually light skinned. And I'm like, yeah, that, no. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is judged from your skin to your background to who you hang out with to it's it's incredible. But one of the things you were talking about when we were going through the history of, you know, black racism and slavery and genocide is this need to control um control bodies. And so I've heard some people like, you know, Desmond Cole and Robin Maynard and, and some of the Black Lives Matter leaders in the United States talk about how, especially in the United States, the early police forces were set up, you know, for two processes in, here in Canada too. One, to trap native people on reserves so that they don't <laughs> occupy their lands and resist and rise up, but also to control the movements of black slaves to make sure that they weren't moving around to, to make sure that they were there doing the forced slave labor and that the police you know there's this belief that oh well you know history's history but if that's how an institution is born and raised and recruited how could it be anything different and do, i mean do you see those same links between what is the purpose of policing institutions and this pandemic of racism and brutality against black and indigenous peoples yeah i mean you can't look at the rcmp which is a specific force like it's the frontier police and that's the whole mythology of the rcmp and you can go and look at children's stories that had the rcmp i mean this is international mythology right particularly of the british empire as well where the rcmp the red coats so they're really held up as this particular force and what they're doing is frontier policing which is like literally killing indigenous people they're there to spread you know, the, the land of the saddler further and further out. If you go to the public gardens in Halifax, that's a military and RCMP tribute, basically. There's all kinds of weird monuments to things like, you know, the Lost Patrol in the Yukon, which is like a bunch of RCMP guys that like died because they wouldn't listen to like the local people that were like, don't go out in a blizzard, you know? Um, and then they become like heroized, like the Lost Patrol. It's like, you know, the guys that died because they didn't listen to the people who knew how to live in an environment. Like, okay. You know, but it's still like, why is that there if it doesn't still mean something? Mm -hmm. And it still means something about the protection of whiteness. So now we don't talk about the frontier. We certainly don't talk about returning kids to residential schools, which is something the RCMP did um, and they're formed to. And of course, in Canada, I mean, they're not particularly formed in relation to blackness. And that's because our border is like actively policing blackness. So if we ever think about how come you know, there's this reign of terror in the States. So, you know, people like to look to the States and understand that, you know, anti-black racism exists there. Okay. So, you know, but, you know, people know the Underground Railroad, but like, why during, you know, the period after slavery to, you know, 1960, why were black people flooding into Canada? And the answer is because we didn't let them, you know, and there's quite literally discourse where Canada is like, let's make sure we don't have the same problems in the United States. We won't have black people. And then we won't have those problems. Like this is the immigration laws that block Chinese people and block Indian people, like where there were Sikhs working in the lumber industry in BC. And it's like, nope, no more of those. Chinese people building the railroad, nope. You know, Japanese internment. So we have a long history of policing the border. So no, blackness isn't in mind, particularly with the RCMP because that's what the border's for. And then it's like internally, let's make sure that the indigenous peoples are gone and wiped out and pushed back and kept contained and have to show papers to leave the reserve and all these basically pass laws that we know that South Africa, for example, studies when they're trying to set up the apartheid system. So um, the architects of apartheid come to Canada and are like, hey, you keep indigenous people contained, we're going to do that and go back and model the apartheid system on that, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we know that there's this direct link again where like 
in other places in the world. Like then the infusion of anti-blackness comes to what Canada pioneers, and I use that word directly, you know, with all its implications in terms of controlling space and controlling bodies. So how do you then just pretend that that somehow stopped one day? And especially when you see the killings of Chantal Moore and Rodney Levi and Regis Korczynski Paquette, who's Afro-Indigenous, and you know the dozens of killings of indigenous people in the last few months alone and particularly it's no surprise accelerated during covid where you have this threat that people can't control a disease you know so what do you what can you control and what can you take your fears and anxieties out, out on black and indigenous people and immigrants and you know the chinese flu so there's this direct relation happening there too where people are like some unknown force is attacking me and we know historically, whenever there's the unknown force, it becomes personalized, like the forest in the story, which is like where the indigenous people live. Like when you read the Scarlet Letter and they talk about the forest, like why is the forest so scary? Who's in the forest, you know? Like, gee, like who's, who's out there, you know? Horror films where it's like, oh no, like what's out, it's black people, you know? Like, so, so you always have this sort of, whenever there's a, a horror or a threat, um, there's a turning to the controlling of us. And you saw that through policing during COVID. Um, the Policing the Pandemic project shows that, right? That it's like homeless indigenous youth and like black kids playing basketball that are being targeted by this policing. And that's directly because people are like, yeah, we, we're scared and we can't control what's happening, but we can control them. So that, yeah, I mean, it, it's very, very active. Um, and of course now it's more like white suburbs and their property rather than the frontier. Um, you know, like the notion that white people even believe they can and should control their streets is interesting to me. Uh, there's this street I like to run on. I'm a runner, you know what I mean? Um, and there's a hill, so I like to do this hill, but there's a beach at the bottom of the hill. It's like on the ocean, and that beach closes at 10, but then like the entire street still exists. And so many times that I'm running on that, and then my partner will come and sit in the car because it's night and he doesn't want me running around. And there's so many times people in that neighborhood come shine flashlights, like telling the streets closed because it's like he's a black man sitting in a car in the street at like 10 30 p.m and they think like their street is is somehow you know theirs to control and i mean you just have to think about the psychology of that and you're like your street doesn't close like you, you live on a public street people come in your public street whatever time we want to be on but that they literally will come and police that um so what mentality is that that says that you know you can police your property in this way and we know that mentality because the mentality that killed colton bushy right? That mm -hmm. this is my land to protect. And it's the mentality that, uh, you know, kills Ahmed Arbery when he's jogging in, in Florida, I mean, in Georgia. So yeah, I mean, I think this is really important because people love to locate racism in the past. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, slavery's been over 200 years. I'm like, first of all, that's not that long. Like my mom called me on Emancipation Day, which is like August 1st, which is our so-called emancipation across the British Empire. <laughs> like, I like my hot take is I wasn't aware black people were free, you know, but yeah. like, when we're like, you know, slavery is abolished, supposedly. Um, and then we were still kept in slavery for like 30 more years, but we, we ignore that part. But like, she called me to tell me again, the story of how my grandmother remembers her grandmother singing this song, like Emancipation Day gone past, poor old back girl, which is white people, gonna eat long grass. So basically like, you don't have your slaves now and like bloating in the street. And that's like my grandmother's grandmother. It's not that far away. And she, she was singing like on Emancipation Day, you know? So first of all, it's not that far away. And second of all, we are living this out in the prison system, in the policing system, in the school system that says, 
uh, you know, black kids can be handcuffed at age five and taken out of the school. In Edmonton, where they allow kids to basically be placed in solitary confinement and they're like putting kids in closets and it's overwhelmingly indigenous kids, particularly indigenous kids that like have autism or learning challenges. And so that um, intersection of disability and being indigenous, which is just, you know, just a death knell for you in the school system, right? So yeah, those same things are really active. So I think it's really important. I know I may be using some intellectual language, but I hope people who are watching don't see this as like an intellectual discussion. Like, you know, two professors be like, mm, you know, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what it is. Like, it's actually yeah. important for us all to understand this yes. because it explains why this is happening. And I think especially for younger people, because we internalize that we're doing something wrong. And this is where you mm -hmm. see young indigenous and young black people really feeling like there must be something I'm doing. Like when the teacher's picking on me and you know singling me out, it must be me. When I'm walking on the streets and like they internalize this kind of label and it's not you, it pre-existed you. It existed before you were born, before your great grandmother was born, this existed and we are living it out. And that doesn't mean that we don't have agency because we do and that's why we get together on the streets and that's mm -hmm. why we block rail lines and that's why we decolonize and organize. We have that power. But we all live it. And part of decolonizing is actually coming to understand that. That, yeah, I'm not, yeah. So, I mean, even knowing this, there's so many times you go see the Reddit discussion of you and you're like, holy, like, am I just like a terrible person? You know? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. no, it's what you represent. That we cannot exist in this white supremacist world when yeah. we are educated. And I don't mean formally educated. I mean, educated in our own ways, yeah. in our own knowledge. Um, However, we want to be educated in our knowledge. I'm mm -hmm. certainly not saying like university, but you know, when we are able to express ourselves and when we are able to live freely and decolonize, that's of course the biggest threat. And that's, you know, when we get targeted. So. Well, and, and even having this discussion, the rules are set by other people, you know, so here it is, we're trying to speak out and educate and advocate and deconstruct and decolonize, but other people are trying to set the rules about how you do it. You know, you can't speak too strongly, but don't speak too softly and maybe don't speak at all in certain cases and, you know, be patient who you talk to, whether you're allowed to say the word white, whether you can use an academic term or a non-academic term, whether you can speak in an indigenous language. It's so that you, you could literally spend your whole time responding to comments on social media. Oh, sorry, that's not what I meant. Oh no, this is what, no, I'm not trying to speak on behalf of everybody. No, I'm sorry. But it, like you could just literally be completely consumed by the rules set by other people. And you know, some of the rules set by other people that we don't have any control over is how Canadians define safety. So, I, you know, and, when I think of safety, I think of, you know, not being shot by somebody, not being arrested by the police. But when many other people think of safety, it means, mm, I don't think I want black or native people in my neighborhood. I don't want to see their faces. So you see all these, you know, Karens and people on, you know, on social media, videos of them calling the police to report a dangerous black man. And it's like, okay, what were they doing? Well, they're in my neighborhood and they shouldn't be here or they're walking on the street or they're, you know, sitting in a car doing a delivery that that somehow safety doesn't even get to be defined by us, but is defined about controlling us or keeping us out of certain neighborhoods. And then that locates blame when police come into conflict with us as in, well, look, if you weren't doing anything wrong. 
you know, if, if you weren't looking for trouble, you wouldn't be in trouble with the police. But that would literally mean we don't go to school <laughs> because with schools with police in it, you can't escape them. So wh where is it that we're allowed that safety means something else and that the blame isn't located on the person who is black or indigenous or yeah, this racialized. Is a, I always say this with the abolitionist conversation so that we need to rethink what safety means and safety should mean everybody having a home. Safety should mean everybody being able to pay their bills like universal basic income. Mm -hmm. Safety should mean everybody having childcare, free childcare. These are the things that actually should guarantee us safety. And we should be thinking in those ways. And of course we think of it as, you know, the minister of public safety, who's literally the top cop in Canada. And that's a person who does your deportations. So controls the border. So who's an undesirable needs to be kicked out of Canada. And then obviously along with that is guns, gangs and drugs, right? Um, and of course our current public safety minister is Bill Blair, who was the police chief in Toronto during the G20. Um, I'm certainly not going to call that, as some people do, the biggest violation of civil rights in Canada. Because I'm like, oh, you just missed everything that happened in black. Yeah. And <laughs> but certainly a big violation in public. Certainly nothing compared to, you know, the hundreds of histories. I hate that kind of ahistorical stuff. The biggest. Yeah. I'm like, except all the times you do stuff to us that you've just forgotten about. Um, but, you know, violated people's civil rights, including, you know, when officers were caught covering their badges. Something that's actually already against the law. Like, police are told they can't do that and they were given one day suspension. I don't even think they were suspended, I think they just lost one day pay. Like they weren't even suspended. Which of course shows that then when people are like, well now body cameras will solve this, it's like, well, <sighs> no, like we already have laws that say people can't do, cops can't do things, it doesn't matter. But that was Bill Blair, he also of course was police chief who defended racial profiling and carding in Toronto. And so when people say, and again, this goes to the conversation of is Canada racist? Like if we were this non-racist tolerant country, that person would be exiled forever, you know? And yeah. in fact, he's promoted from being police chief and is one of the most important people in Trudeau's cabinet. The same Trudeau that will then take a knee or say he's an ally to indigenous people or he cares about black lives and he's listening to us. But look who you put in as minister of public safety. This person who is directly has a history. The only thing he's basically known for is violating our rights. Um, but that's what safety is. So that shows you. And like, if you look at this discourse of safety, um, like you remember it started arising with like safe grad and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it's yeah. become like airport safety, which is anti-Muslim and Islamophobic, right? So, and then it's used, so protests now they'll often tell you that it's for your own safety, right? Yeah. So we're not, um, you know, pulling these people off the rail line because it's an economic issue when you're shutting down Canada. It's your own safety, like you're becoming unsafe, right? So safety comes to mean security, which comes to mean we can arrest whoever we want for their own safety, which is the most Orwellian twisting of language. Um, and then that's what we associate it with. But in fact, and then like, that's not even talking about the word public because who's meant by public, not us. Yeah. Uh, when people talk about the public, they mean white middle-class property owners, what Desmond Cole calls the angry white majority. Right. And you've written really well about this when you talk about polls, for example, when they like poll the Canadian populace and then everyone's like, we're tired of hearing about residential schools. Yeah. <laughs> Two thirds of Canadians are like, <laughs> about residential schools. And like, that's supposed to be news. Like, and then it's presented like this objective thing that just fell out of the sky and we have to listen to this. And I always say that like, um, cause you do that article, you wrote an article about yeah. that, link it, you know, so people will see it. Cause I always quote that article. It's a really good article on like, just the, the stupidity of polling, right? That they ask these biased questions 
and then they treat it as though it's independent news and then put it in a headline like two-thirds of Canadians hate Indigenous people. Yeah. And like, we must contend with this. Are the Liberals on the wrong strategy when they like, you know, but like they would never call people, they would never call us up and be like, do you think like white people need to go, you know? Yeah. If that yeah. happened and two-thirds of Indigenous people said like white people need to go, they wouldn't just like present that like in all information. <laughs> It'll be like, we need to send in the military, like, yes. people, like, you know, how do we, then being radicalized on the reserves, like, how do we, you know, this decolonization movement, like, this making them hate white people, you know, like, it would be a whole thing, and it would be a national crisis, but when they call up white people, they're basically like, do you hate them, and they're like, yeah, there's too many migrants, and it's almost two-thirds, two-thirds of people also yeah. said there's too many immigrants and migrants, and two-thirds hate us talking, you know, people talking about residential schools, and two-thirds think, think that like affirmative action is probably like it's always the same 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 thing right um and that's the public that's what they mean yeah. when they say public safety and it doesn't mean sex workers and it doesn't mean indigenous people and it doesn't mean black people and it doesn't mean people living with mental illness and it doesn't mean homeless people and it doesn't mean queer and trans people like it means us i mean everybody but us you know what i mean like yeah. and that's who has to be protected but for abolition politics that's exactly what we're trying to rethink it's not about taking the bricks out of a building because right now if we got rid of prisons right now if aliens came down and like you know magicked away every prison we would put something else in its place because we would want to punish and it would be the same people my sister often says that even if the punishment was essays we know that black people would be assigned the longest essays yeah and it would be, you know the hardest marks and that's the same thing for indigenous people like no matter what the punishment was we would always be the objects of that punishment because we haven't changed anything about our relationships yet, you know? Um, and that's reflected in the notion that we are always a threat. So that's reflected in the notion that we are deficient in particular ways and that our deficiency, our badness comes from our culture, right? So there's something in us, in our homes, in mm -hmm. our parenting, in our inability to learn correctly, like we're just, we're just bad people and it comes from our bad culture. And the only ones of us who are good are those of us who are sufficiently civilized by whiteness. So if we're like articulate and clean and, you know, like don't talk that race stuff and yeah. I'm willing to say like, oh, I don't like indigenous people either. Like, you know, yeah. I think black people are allowed to, then we're okay. But it's only to the extent that we're willing to, you know, put on whiteness and be close to it. And that's the only thing that makes us marginally acceptable. And then we'll be held up as like, but that can be taken away at any time, right? Um, yeah. The minute we make any mistake, you know? So, yeah, I mean... So yeah, just to sort of wrap that up on abolition politics, mm -hmm. that's why we talk about, you know, abolition isn't about the prison as such. It's about a culture of punishment. It's an ideology of discipline. It's something in us that needs to see vengeance upon other people. And it's to do with our relationships on land. Yeah, it is. It is to do with the fact that, you know, when you have a history of stolen land and stealing resources and entitlement to people, you have to move people off that line. And the prison is, is, is that, you know? When you have a history of, punishing people uh, just for their skin, you know, yeah. and for representing something that's going to be represented in our politics, right? So mm -hmm. abolition politics requires us to undo capitalism. And yeah, we can't talk about justice on stolen land. There is no way to talk about abolition without understanding that we need indigenous sovereignty in order to accomplish that. And no, you can't destroy the environment and talk about abolition. <laughs> and like, you know, no, you can't uh, have communities that call the police on each other and don't care for each other and live separately and you know, our elders are discarded and like none of that can happen in an abolitionist culture. And that's where we say that abolition is about changing everything and changing everything from our hearts to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our communities. And then, yes, that would also mean the prison and the police. 
Well, yeah, because the important thing is that it's literally all connected. It's called systemic racism for a reason. I mean, Canada's literally founded and ingrained and structured on racism. So you can't just say, well, you know what? We're going to hire more black and indigenous peoples in our universities and that'll combat racism or we're going to hire more workers or more RCMP officers who are black and indigenous and that's going to solve the problem without looking at the economics. Oh, well, wait a second. The RCMP pensions are invested in pipelines. Wow. No wonder they're so enthusiastic about shutting down indigenous peoples in pipelines. And by the way, if you protest in the streets in solidarity, black people, we're also going to put you in prison. Like our essence is criminalized our being, our values, our freedoms, and the ability to be free and act free, they're, they're all criminalized. And I think in a lot of the discussions around police racism and brutality against Indigenous peoples, which some people still seem to think only really relates to beatings and killings as the way in which they harm Indigenous peoples, don't really see how just connected it is to the prison system that you can destroy a person's life, effectively give them a, a life sentence by profiling, targeting, harassing, and then ultimately charging and imprisoning someone, even if they get out later, that their lives are forever impacted. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that so that people see this connection between policing and prisons that you, we really need to deal with both. Yeah, and I mean, this is, so, I mean, I was having this conversation the other day where I said, to a certain extent, defunding, I think to the extent that it's coddled, and I'm not going to pretend it's actually popular, but yeah. it's still kind of capitalist, right? Like, we're just talking about moving money around. And so people are like, okay, I get that money. And maybe we could put that money somewhere else. Like, so yeah, we could take 10 million here and put it here and build some homes, right? Like, that's still within the status quo. Mm. Abolition is outside the status quo, because we're not now talking about moving money around. We're actually talking about things like, what does radical love look like? What does accountability actually look like? What does healing look like? And how do we have to change our basic relationships for that to happen? And that's a lot harder of a conversation, right? Um, and I, we saw this kind of, I mean, we saw this with the prisons, right? Uh, the good example is the women's prison. So when Kingston Prison for Women was the only federal prison for women, there was never more than like 40 something federally incarcerated women at any one time in Canada. Um, Kingston Prison for Women was obviously like in many ways a terrible place like um, but also women who did time there will talk about the strong bonds that women were able to to develop not because the prison like we should glorify the prison for that it's rather what like Frederick Douglass talks about if you ever read the um, when he writes his autobiography he talks about teaching his fellow slaves to read and he says he never felt any love as profound as when he's with his fellow slaves in that relationship of oppression and they're like liberating themselves. And like, I think that's the analogy I would make with women in Kingston prison for women. They're not being like that prison was awesome. They're saying that yeah. as women in that situation, there were bonds that they were able to develop through oppression that are extremely powerful bonds. Right. Um, so when they shut down Kingston prison for women, they open up not only the regional prisons, but of course the healing lodge. And now we have over 500 federally incarcerated women and indigenous women make up 42% and rising of that population. So there's a direct relationship between, you know, we build these prisons and we find people to fill them and who are we filling them with? Indigenous women. So is there this crime wave of like indigenous women? Like I just can't leave the house everywhere I go, indigenous women just robbing me. No, like it's not happening. So what is happening is the most violent expression of colonialism. And upon 
the bodies that have always been the violent victims of that, indigenous women, whether through missing and murdered indigenous women, through the moment that this contact, I mean, I don't mean to be triggering here, so I'm sorry, but you know, if you read Columbus's letters, it's like first letter, oh, the indigenous people, they're so beautiful. Like they look like the ancient ones. Second letter, we're building a fort. Third letter, he's raping indigenous women on his ship and you know, talking about how they love it, right? So you know, there's this direct, direct, direct connection, right? Um, so yeah, the prison is the expression of colonialism. It exists to incarcerate black and indigenous people. Um, it exists as a form of genocide. So there's a connection between the growth of the prison and the end of enslavement that Michelle Alexander talks about, that um, the documentary 13th talks about, that as black people can no longer be controlled by enslavement, there's an immediate thing that arises that black people are criminals. So in slavery, we're actually somewhat docile, right? Like there's a mixed kind of thing, but there's a lot of, oh, they're loyal, they love their slavery, they're singing in the fields, they would never rise up. You know, like they're like old hound dogs. But then the minute we're free, it's like, oh my God, they're gonna run around raping everybody. And in the particular, you get this notion of the black male rapist, right? That, you know, he just desires white woman, he's gonna be out raping her. And then like uh, control is put back in, which is like the rise of the KKK, for example, you know, like all of these things that are about lynching black people, keeping black people in their place, segregating black people. Um, that's directly tied to like, we've lost control of them this way, so we need to establish control through policing and through mm -hmm. prisons. And Michelle Alexander writes about, you know, black people immediately start being given like tickets for vagrancy and like riding the trains and, you know, small crimes that can allow them to basically be re-enslaved because at that time you're gonna be sharecropping or working the fields. So this is a mechanism of enslavement, which of course still exists today in the prison shops mm -hmm. and in, you know, the growth of prison labor, um, which particularly in the United States is not absent in Canada. We have poor can as well. And one of the things that they do in some like prisons is like they make indigenous arts uh, APTN had this article about this and like totally like pan, you know, pan indigenous, like everybody make moccasins, <laughs> like isn't even anything to do with people's culture. And then they're selling that like as, as like handcrafted indigenous items. Like, so mm -hmm. if you can't see that connection, like let's take these people from their community, let's strip your community, like move your community from where it's supposed to be, make it illegal to hunt and fish, not allow you on the land forcibly put you in residential schools, strip you of your language, strip you of your culture, ability to survive even on your own land. Somehow you're still keeping that, like, you know, people are still maintaining language, people are still doing this because we can't get this out of you. So, okay, now we're gonna turn to the prison system and criminalize you from your unresourced community, your community that doesn't even have water in it. Like, the most absurd thing I think in Canada, like, is, you know, if you think of like science fiction books, you know, from like the 1960s, and they'd be in the year 2000. Yeah. And they'd be like, no, we're gonna be on Mars. And it's like, no. And then we're like, we're gonna get clean water to indigenous communities by 2030. And they're like, we're supposed to have jetpacks yeah. and, you know, moving sidewalks. <laughs> and not only do we not have that, but we're talking about maybe we might get your community clean water, like maybe in 10 more years, but probably not. Like, we'll just have to move that deadline. Like, that is an absurdity, but it's also a sickness. It's a sickness in this culture, in this society. Like, how can people sit here and just, like, think that's okay? And, and the notion that we're actually taught that's normal. Like, oh, it's yeah. sad, but it's normal. Oh, yeah, those poor communities, without thinking, like, what does it actually mean to live in this country with this wealth directly extracted from these communities and actually have the nerve to sit here and talk about we might consider you getting you some clean water so that you, like, don't die, you know? But in the meantime, I guess just boil. Like, it, it's, it's so... Like it, the idea that we think that's like normal and something that won't be a historical atrocity is, is actually kind of mind boggling, right? Um, that we just kind of have this discourse like on a normal basis. Like 
you know, so, so the prison exists as a genocidal tool. Some people call mm. it soft genocide. I don't know if there's anything soft about it. It's literally yeah. about stripping people off their land, um, literally removing people, as people said, the new residential school, right? Like putting people back under state control and black people, the same thing. It's the new enslavement. It's slavery's afterlife. Um, and yes, to extract labor from people, to extract our money, because we are the ones that have to support that through phone calls and all the charges and, you know, sending the boxes and what we give into the canteen system and all of this stuff that's being supported by family members um, that is sending, you know, millions of dollars a year into the system. And it's not even financial because we know that it actually costs more to keep people in prison. Yeah. So, it's the same thing I say about racial profiling in stores. I'm like, some people, tend, sometimes this culture likes racism more than it likes money. So like when black people come in a store and they're like, we don't want you here. Like we actually would rather not have your money. Like we're going to follow you around. And that's kind of the same thing as the prison system. Like, yeah, this actually does cost. Like for an indigenous woman, it could be up to $300,000 yeah. a year. We'd actually rather spend that than put you in housing for like one eighth of the cost or something. We would actually rather punish you. Like it's actually more important to us to brutalize you and to violate you and to you know strip search you and to do all those things so then why is it more important if it doesn't stop crime and it's not even like financially there's something other value to it and the value to it is it continues this process of colonization which is the most valuable thing to this country making sure that people don't have access to the ancestral lands making sure that people don't have access to their culture making sure that people can't decolonize and you've written about this as well i teach a lot of your work i mean you've been so clearly on why for example the indian act focused on stripping women of status mm -hmm. and this is the same thing when it's indigenous women that are like almost half of the prison system do we not see that connection that this is the same thing if the mothers are off the land, if the mothers are away from their children, if the mothers are being brutalized by the state in this way and then on parole and on probation and being watched. So then she can't go to a protest. She can't become a land offender because she's on conditions and she can't have contact to learn how to do those things. Right. And so it, it's really just a mass way of, again, in, in seeding violence into the next generation she's away from her kids and then foster care can come in and say well you yeah. have a criminal record and then when she has a kid they're right at the hospital before, she, before she's even had a chance to mother and your baby's being taken right off your breast and you know this ongoing violence generation to generation to generation from the time a child's in the womb they're already being tracked by the system and it all manifests from the prison system and that was a really really long answer i'm sorry no but no but that's that's exactly what it is i mean if you're making the point over and over and over again to my, you know, to my comment that you, these things aren't individual things, like all the tinkering around the edges that people think are the solution. Well, you know, do some more, you know, affirmative action hiring over here, indigenous university over here, um, you know, bring sweetgrass into the prisons. And I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be doing that because the reality is our people are captive there. But it's as if that's the solution to the skyrocketing incarceration rates, which we know are fed by the skyrocketing police racism and brutality rates and the you know, kids in foster care and violence against, I mean, it all feeds itself. And unless we detach and destroy and completely you know, deconstruct that system, there is no, cultural awareness training, gender sensitivity training, or any of those, you know, one hour tick the checkbox things that are ever going to solve the problem. That might make people feel good, like they've done something, 
but how in 2020 can we look at the socioeconomic conditions of black and indigenous peoples which continue to get worse and say but things are getting better better for whom is I, I guess is the question and is it only for those people you see is it for the people you believe are exceptions to the rule and why are they exceptions and and part of the work that I really admire that you do is this prison justice work because we've found over the years that it gets no attention from government in in terms of our advocacy whether we're advocating for um, indigenous women in prison or kids and youth corrections and even at the international level when we travel there at the un human rights treaties bodies it's very hard to get prison issues just on the table and we're talking about human rights so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work that you do that's related to prisons yeah um and i mean i don't know if there's an indigenous version of afro pessimism i'm sure there is i just don't know <laughs> what it is so afro pessimism is the idea that um black people have always been seen as as not human in particular ways and that there's a kind of social death that we experience through blackness so um that we are always located beside death um, that we are always imagined in a state of death and that blackness is a kind of exile from humanity so that we're always trying to claim humanity in particular ways um, but in some ways we can't claim it because um you know we have to go out and like protest to you know get a working toilet in our like housing unit and that's such an undignified unhuman kind of thing to have to do and that's what blackness becomes like we're the people that have to fight to get a flushing toilet you know that's what it means to be black and afro-pessimism looks at that um, I'm giving a very short summary. Mm -hmm. So the notion here is like when you think of like somebody becoming criminal, nobody wants to advocate for that person, especially if it's a black or indigenous criminal, including our own people, right? Because in this trajectory upwards, we're supposed to be focused and capitalism teaches us this, that if we would just buckle down and get mm -hmm. an education and take advantage of the things that we're being given, and uh, you know, then we could just go live in the suburb too and basically effectively become white. But the cost of that is, of course, we're supposed to remove all allegiance that we have to our own communities and our own people and just buy into whiteness. And at this point in time, the whiteness is like willing to let us do that on contingent ways. Like we can become a professor, we can become a doctor, we can become a lawyer, all those things. Now, if we disrupt in that space, we will be kicked out. But <laughs> the I or you know, it's not given tenure or, or whatever it is, or you know, like, oh no, talked about behind the closed door, whatever they can do with it. Um, you know, Paul, Paul Robeson said this years ago in his testimony when he's being accused of being a communist in front of the House of American Activities, and they said to him, um, well, you've been successful, like you're a movie star, like you're a football star, you went to Rutgers, and he says, I do not consider the success of one or two black people to have like anything to do with the mass of my people still laboring under oppression, right? And it's the same thing here, that we're allowed to be tokenized because there's a notion of that we can point to those good people and say, if you guys would just stop playing the fool and would do that, you could be successful, which is something that those of us who have reached these positions have to forcibly reject at all points. Mm -hmm. Like we have to make sure that we are saying, do not use me in this way. Like do not dare to use me against my people. Right. Yeah. But when you add that, so already the crime of being indigenous and black, and then you add that to, you know, actually being labeled as a criminal, what kind of human are you then? And the minute you, you put criminal on someone, it becomes like nobody wants to advocate for that. Um, and again, even our own people will say, well, we don't want to get caught up in that because we already don't want people to think like if we're Somali immigrants, we're already being labeled as or refugees. You know, we're already being labeled as violent. So I, we, we can't have you saying this person who's being deported. Like if we look like we're supporting that, we're already being told that's what our culture supports. So we actually need to reject it to prove we're respectable. And that's respectability politics. Right. The idea of like, 
we believe that our survival comes from being able to seem like we're respectable. And, you know, that's how we survived in a lot of cases throughout history. Mm -hmm. So even yeah, within our own communities, like how many people want to advocate for, yes, people who have killed people, and yes, people who may be sex offenders, and yes, people who have committed harm. And it's not about minimizing that harm. We're not hand-waving it. We're not saying it doesn't matter, it doesn't happen. We're saying in many ways it's more complex that, you know, if you care so much about victims and why are, you know, 90 plus percent of women in jail who are victims of sexual and physical abuse, why are they in your victim profile? So when are they victims and when are they criminals? And that's also true for men, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the men I deal with, especially those doing hard time, are also victims of childhood abuse and often in institutions, often in the youth institutions and the foster care home and the lock group home. And we know from men how men internalize that kind of trauma often does turn into this kind of violent, you know, that, that's you know, where you see violent activity and, and the ways that men process that. Um, so are we healing that or stopping that by that man doing 25 years or 10 years or 15 years in a max? Have we actually addressed anything there? If, if uh, you know, prison addressed sexual assault, which is sort of a sticking point for a lot of people, right? But what about um, sexual abuse? But prison doesn't stop sexual abuse now. Like only 1% of rape cases end up in any kind of conviction. Like, so if prison's what we're turning for, for that, it's a complete failure. We know that most women don't even bother going to court to testify or report because of the re-traumatization. So doesn't that tell us that we need to do something else that might actually hold people accountable, that might actually deal with sexual assault, that might actually address its roots and deal with trauma and not, you know, someone's in prison for two years, so yay. And then they get back out, nothing's changed. So, you know, I guess that worked somehow. Like it just doesn't actually make any sense, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard because you'll be accused of advocating for murderers and sex offenders. Um, you'll be accused of, um, you know, what about victims? And that's very real. Like, those of us in our communities know that victimization is real. Black women and indigenous women are highly victims of violence. You know, so it's not like we're speaking out of position where we're not aware that people ex experience these things. And in our own communities as well. It's just that we don't think that this is actually the solution. We think there's better ways to do it. We think our people manage these things before prisons and maybe we can learn something from the way that we did these things before a capitalist colonial prison came in that has nothing to do with keeping us safe, only when it's convenient. We'll be held up. So missing and murdered indigenous women will be held up in the conversation only to the point where it might act as a gotcha to somebody saying maybe we don't need prisons and police. Well, the RCMP come and help when you're missing. It's like, no, they actually don't. <laughs> actually the rcmp no. also exploit and rape yeah. and like do these things to people so no we don't think that system does anything like no we don't you know so um but it's it's hard because it's like the gotcha answer to the question right like mm -hmm. and that's what makes you crazy right like oh you think that serial killers should be roaming around society it's like no actually we don't like that's not what we're advocating for but um it becomes very easy so um, respectability politics tells us that it's better to focus on education because access to education, we want to go to school, you know, like yeah. um, we want more representation in cabinet. Those are things that still fit in the system. And saying that no black life left behind is now getting awkward because then when we're like, we're not free until all of us are free. And yes, we mean the people in prison for murder. Yes, we mean them too. Like we actually do mean them. And we actually do see them as part of our community and we're not going to allow them to be disposed of. And that doesn't mean that we're like 
glossing over what they did. We actually are taking more seriously what they did because we understand that we need a community-based solution for that and that we actually understand that putting one person away doesn't heal a harm and that actually to heal a harm, we need to get together as a community and have deep discussion and learn how to hold each other accountable. That's a much longer process and a deeper process than just banging a gavel, you know? So um, I think, yeah, I mean, the, it's, it's I, like at this point in my life, and I don't know if you've experienced this, you know, when you first start doing advocacy, like you're like white people, <laughs> white people only, you know? And then I think the more you go, you also have to contend with elements in your own community. Yeah. Um, and that becomes, I think, much more difficult because in the end, like white people are going to white. And I don't mean like all white people, yeah. people are watching this, but you know, the, the people that are just going to hate you for your being, like there's nothing you can say or do as we talked about. So like, there's no point. I don't study that. You know, they're going to hate me. I always say there could be a story about a black person playing with puppies and there'd be comments about it, you know, action puppies, you know, puppies, you know, so like those people we can't, they're never going to be convinced. They don't want us to live. But then there's like, you know, the other kind of idea that how do we deal with people in our own communities that are being put up in front of us um, as gatekeepers, you know, that are being put in our way. So the people that then become the warden of the prison, and now we have to go at that person. And then everyone's like, that's my cousin. Why are you being so rude to, you know, mm. this person? They're black. And I'm like, they may be black, but they're part of the system. It's not personal, but we still need to address the system. So I think one of the dangers of this age is that as we're given access, we're also being given access to active agents of the system, right? And then those of us who take a radical stance on the system not only have to contend with white supremacy and white people, but the ways that white supremacy, of course, enlists our people. Like, let's not forget that black people were involved in colonial policing as well. That's the Buffalo Soldier. And bizarrely, we kind of hold that up as a metaphor of our own freedom because like black people felt this kind of liberation that, but who were we finding liberation against? We were given liberation to the extent that we were able to commit violence on indigenous people. And we know that indigenous people own slaves. So in both of our communities, we have examples of how we did, and not because we're defective or insufficiently whatever, because we were trying to survive in the state and the state has always told us that our route to survival is doing the things that are necessary, like mm -hmm. going to war. And if you have to go and kill some indigenous people, do that. And if you might have to enslave some people to, to look dominant, do that. And we're still struggling with that today, right? The modern version of that is our black, you know, immigration minister, now like labor minister. But, you know, when we were fighting Abdul Abdi's deportation, there was a Somali minister, Ahmed Hussein. And yes, our own people told us that we were being mean to him, you know, like, and he faces all this racism and how dare you guys disrupt him. But he's the immigration minister, like, you know? And yeah, the black police chief that, oh, but he's black, you know? Um, and I'm sure, you know, there's so many examples in your own community, the chiefs that are like defending the pipeline, right? So how do we manage that as well? Like that is, is such a hard question of the colonial uh, mindset and the, how colonization works. So we end up having to fight our own people on these issues, our own people that believe we belong in jails, our own people that accept the notion of black on black crime and that we're actually hyper-violent. Um, you know, our own people have internalized this idea that we just can't find our own freedom, which is another huge anti-blackness idea. Like one of the founding ideas of anti-blackness is black people are not capable of understanding our own liberation. This is why we need white saviors, right? That, you know, we can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us, you know? So, um, and I was, I always give you these long answers. I'm no, no, it's good because you just, 
as soon as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I show this documentary to my class. It's called, you know, Dancing Around the Table or something like that. And it's the constitutional talks, you know, between the first Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Indigenous peoples. And, you know, there's this part where Indigenous women come to the table and they're like, you've got to get rid of this sex discrimination in the Indian Act and women need a voice and we have to have equal rights. And, you know, he looks at them and says, you know, here's the problem. If you don't think you're equal, then there's nothing we can do. You're equal if you believe you're equal. I mean, like the audacity and the entitlement and the just how it just oozed out of his mouth and that that will forever be ingrained in in me as, you know, the, the, the responses that we get and the difficulties, like you said, I mean, when Trudeau first got elected, and they were saying, oh, who's going to be the Minister of Indian Affairs and who's going to be the Minister of Public Safety and all that. I was, I wrote an article saying, please don't let an Indigenous person be the Minister of Indian Affairs. I know that people are calling for that, but that's actually the worst. That's like sending in an Indigenous RCMP officer to tear Native people out of protest because you're, you're, you know, that's colonization just working overtime. So the public sees well, you've got an indigenous minister. That's what you wanted. And, and they're enforcing all of this, you know, injustice against you. And then it, it, then the radicals on the outside, I mean, and I don't think any of us are radicals, but the people who believe in things like human rights, which are the law <laughs> and non-discrimination and non-violence and all of these things get pitted as radicals, terrorists, eco-terrorists, threats to national security. I mean, we've been called everything under the book. And then that's the justification for now monitoring our texts and our phone calls and what we read and where we go. And then it's, so it's just, but, and then our own people are a part of that. And that's, I, you know, for the most part, that's a conversation that, you know, I have separately with First Nation communities, but it's a very difficult conversation because we're having it in a context of call, 500 years of colonization and that are these ideas being beaten into us. So I can't just judge people and say, well, look at, you know, how could you possibly think this way? Because we're all at different levels of addressing the colonizer in our heads. Important as I'm talking to you. And then that, I, yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. So, so it's so like hard. It's complicit in these systems, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's hard to have these conversations because not everybody knows the origins of everything and the explanations and the now like and people have to live right so yes i mean and this is i think again where transformative justice comes in that um transformative justice uh encourages us to understand our complexities and to be yes. honest and gentle with ourselves about that yeah so when we are all complicit in harm we are all harmers and we have all been harmed you know um and when we are thinking of someone else's harm, we actually do need to be honest with ourselves too about like, so why am I maybe complicit in this? If it's my brother, you know, mm -hmm. how am I going to work through the fact that I love my brother and also my brother did this harmful thing? And does that mean I can't love him? Does it mean I have to defend him in order to love him? Or can I both, you know, condemn this thing he did, but also love him, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and Transform Justice asks us to really dig into those complexities, to think about ourselves, the times we've been complicit, the ways we've harmed, also to understand the ways we've been harmed, and then to work from this place of deep compassion and also our own experiences and try and find a way through that to healing mm -hmm. and accountability, right? Um, but it, it's very, very difficult. I mean, we haven't even had a chance to breathe in our communities. We talk about post-traumatic slavery disorder, right? Um, 
you know, and this idea that we've been, what, 40, 50 years we've been able to participate in institutions and then we're some, somehow just supposed to be perfect, you know, we're supposed to know every answer on how to dismantle these systems yeah. that people have had 500 years to practice putting up. But if I can't give you every answer for what to do with every dangerous sex offender, then I'm, you know, ridiculous, you know, like, it's so much pressure and, and yeah, so it's not about judging and saying like, yeah. oh, level, but it's very, very difficult. And I think very dangerous in these times, because even as we speak, we're watching these movements be appropriated, be co-opted, be softened, be weakened. Mm -hmm. I know that at the end of, um, you know, these months, what we're going to get out of it is a couple more tokenistic positions on some corporate boards. So then yeah. what we really need from BLM is some black people to be on the board of like <laughs> you know, the oil company. <laughs> You know, yeah. I went to this conference at Harvard like a few years ago and they were literally saying stuff like, you know, black activism can be making sure that there's more black people on the board of like your corporate bank. And I'm like the corporate bank that's stripping people of their mortgages and like defrauding people. But that becomes, I mean, if you go to Harvard, I guess yeah. you're like you really do think that more black people at Goldman Sachs is maybe like some kind of solution. But we know that's going to happen. We yeah. know that. Yeah more more indigenous wardens or more black wardens and guards is going to be the solution and we have to keep fighting that no that's not what we mean no yeah. like we don't want prisons and yes as you said it's also complex because at the same time as people are in there we have no right to say well we're not going to facilitate you smudging or you yeah. having a cultural program because i don't believe in the prison you know like yeah we have to also allow people to have dignity and humanity and spirituality and to exist day to day in the the, the best possible way even as we understand a prison can never be safe, a prison can never be healthy, a prison can never um, do what we need it to do. It will not prevent crime. It does not punish in any rational way. It tortures, it separates, and it destroys. And that is what mm -hmm. a prison does. And it doesn't do the things that people want it to do. Catch bad people. Yeah, no. Prevent crime, you know? Those things are myths. And they're myths mm -hmm. reinforced over and over again by our TV screen, by our media, by like, literally the image of cops in alphabet books. You know, my nephew, when he had oh. a ABC book and it said J is for justice and had a picture of like an RCMP officer, you know, and it's like, he doesn't even know what that means, but he's <laughs> seen it. And then, you know, he's gonna go see the RCMP and, and believe that the RCMP, J is for justice, you know? And then if you sit him down and tell him like the RCMP actually rip indigenous people off their lands, like they're out in wetsuit and like, you know, ki kidnapping grandmothers and abducting them. If he says that at school, are they gonna, then they're like gonna call in, you know, no. Right? <laughs> we have this child in the class. <laughs> yeah. He's anti-police. <laughs> well, and it's everywhere. I mean, you know, you've got cop shows, cop movies, cop Lego, cop books. Co I mean, all of it. And, and you don't, you don't, and I think all of that needs to be dis deconstructed. And, you know, one of the things I admire about you is you're not just researching this stuff you don't just study this stuff or you don't just write about it you're in it you take like personal accountability to do what you can and i'm wondering if you have time before you have to go to you know talk a little bit about your black power hour what what is that and what's that about the black power hour is a radio show collective with people in prison um so i suppose the most public expression of it is quite literally our radio show uh, it's been on hiatus because of COVID, because it's like out of the Dalhousie mm -hmm. building. We actually have to restart it. Like, we have to get ourselves together to get it back out there. But it's on CKDU 88.1. You can listen to it online. Um, at various points, sometimes it's call-in. Sometimes it's just the topics are directed by people inside. 
Um, but beyond also a radio show, we do court support. Um, we do a lot of work with lifers in particular. Um, so it's expanded to that, uh, really trying to deal with the issue of life imprisonment. I think one of the most, even within imprisonment, again, the most like neglected area is what about murders, right? So like the people that are actually doing life that um, there's really no addressing of that. Like, you know, a life sentence in Canada used to be like 10 years and now it's 25, right? So if prison works, why can't it work in 10 years? <laughs> like, you know, what is it about going to 25 years? And those are things we actually have to think about that these arbitrary mm -hmm. things that get installed and then get installed as the law and as the right. And of course it should be 25 years. It should be longer, you know, without actually thinking about what that means. So we do a lot of that work. Um, trying to work with communities, uh, particularly with like black families, mothers, grandmothers, um, to, to talk about these issues. And then also we do a lot of just organizing with people who are in prison. So everything from um, like reading circles. So just talking about concepts, because I do believe that, you know, everybody can and must, everyone has a capacity to liberate themselves. And that means having access to the information that our ancestors gave us. So, mm -hmm. you know, if Anon was writing a book, he wasn't writing it so it could be studied in a university classroom. He was part of the struggle. Fanon was in Algeria struggling against the French, like fighting a liberation war and writing to us at the same time. He wanted us to read that. Um, you know, and it's really important that struggle work isn't done by people outside the struggle, like people sitting in an office writing about social movements. So we in social movements, political movements, in rebellion, you know, we have a duty to read that work and to understand it and to spread it and share it. So we do a lot of uh, working with people inside, like literally send, you know, photocopying and sending in Angela Davis, photocopying and sending in things and then talking about it. And not everybody has to necessarily do the reading, but everybody can speak about it. Mm -hmm. Somebody, those who have the capacity to read can read. Those who may struggle a bit more with reading can listen and speak, but we can all share that information whatever way. And I think it's, you know, one of the things I really hate is when people pretend only some people have the ability to learn. Like, you know, mm -hmm. oh, oh, well, you can't expect that of people. Yes, you can. Because we can expect our own liberation. We all have the ability in our own way. It doesn't look the same for everybody, but everybody has the ability to do this work. So we do a lot of that, too. Um, you know, like, I just, yeah, in the end, um, like, liberation is for everybody. It has to be shared among everybody. And those of us who have been advantaged to get in positions where we have some time or some money or, you know, some knowledge, we have to be willing and it's actually our duty to share it back and to do mm -hmm. what we can. Um, I don't want to ever be in a position where I'm speaking about something and then I'm like, but I don't know, I've never got my hands dirty. I'm not, you know, I'm not in prison. I can never claim that experience. So all I can do is do my best to like boost those voices that are in prison and to do what I can every day to liberate those people who are in prison and put myself online when I'm able to. I'm never going to be the one taking the most risk. It's the person who makes the phone call from prison to tell you the thing that is the person at risk. You are not at risk. Um, but, you know, the fact that I am a black person living in freedom is something that my ancestors can't claim, you know? Like, it took the work of my ancestors to bring me here. We were supposed mm -hmm. to be dead. You know, many of our people jumped off cliffs. Many of our people jumped overboard. Many of our people died. Um, and those of us that survived are the descendants of people who weren't supposed to be here. So every day, I think we have a duty to work towards our liberation on behalf of other people. So I'm not saying I'm successful at it every day. Like this day, I'm like <laughs> drinking my Tim Hortons, you know, like oh, crash, you know, we're not perfect. Um, I do harm as well. I fail all the time, you know, and that's our politic isn't about being pure. Our politic is about being human. 
Um, we have the right to be human like everybody else. And that's what we've been stripped of through history. Our ability to be vulnerable, our ability to love, our ability to make mistakes, mm-hmm. our ability to like be not good on a particular day, our ability to express anger, our ability to, you know, if we're not those things, we are constantly judged and under the gaze. And I don't want to be anything but a human black person. And I want every other black person to have the right to the same humanity. Well, what a perfect way to wrap this up because man, all of us, all of us engaged in this struggle are so wonderfully humanly imperfect. And if we focus on all of the imperfections, it just detracts away from, you know, the movement and the cause and the purpose. And I really like, you know, what you're saying about this isn't about being pure. You know, this is about being human and trying to help other humans and make it better for other humans and plants and animals and the earth ultimately. And so like, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your work and all the ways in which you support the rest of us, all the things other people won't see behind the scenes, but the way you will use other people's work, the way you will support activists, the way you will lift up other voices. I mean, that's really important work too. And, and I really appreciate that. I, I literally learn something from you every time I talk to you. I feel like you're an ancient wisdom trapped in this amazing, powerful human body. And, and, and I really appreciate it. I really thank you for your work. I teach you every, every class. I teach something of yours um, because you're, you have so much that's worth teaching you know first year i'll teach like your canada 150 is a celebration of indigenous <laughs> yeah. in second year i'm teaching like your work on the indian act and then third year i'm teaching you know and, and what i admire about your work is you have this academic work but you have so much work that's just public work that you, I, I know that you take the time to, with all i know what your responsibilities are not only in your academic work and then your activist work and I know that those articles are getting written like two in the morning. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's really important that it's out there that people can access. So I really admire um, how many levels you work on. Um, you know, and I'm like, I know you're on like watch lists and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes a cost. Um, you know, we can laugh about it, but there, there is a cost and there is a sacrifice required. And that sacrifice is only made possible because we stand shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. with so many people that boost us up and give us voice, you know? Too many people to name, those who came before us. None of us are speaking in 2020 out of our own. Nothing we're saying wasn't, you know, laid for us long before, but long forgotten who never were given a name, you know, but we're here. Um, So yeah, thank you so much. Um, And thank you for also, I think it's really important. I mean, Black and Indigenous solidarity, you know, is, is, we need more work on it. You know, it's hard. There's so much, we absorb anti-Indigenous sentiment, anti-Black sentiment. Um, like, and you'll hear stuff in our own communities mm-hmm. about each other. And it, it's really, really important for us to do the work to work past that. So I really appreciate you doing this as well. Well, of course. And, you know, that's how we're going to change it with our solidarity. I mean, you know, we're in this for the long haul. <laughs> you know, this is our, this isn't a volunteer job. This isn't a, you know, nine to five thing. This is what we do for life and to live and to ensure other people live. So thank you so much for being a part of this. And thank you. you, you, you just want to end. <laughs> no, no, no. 
Okay, we could keep going. I don't know. We're really long. You might have to edit things down. <laughs> yeah, no, nope. They're getting it all raw. Um, so thank you to all the podcast listeners and YouTube subscribers for listening to this. But more than listening, you know, use education for action. So find ways that you can help. I'll post some links to Elle's work and her Black Power Hour to find, you know, so that you can support. Um, because we really need to do this. We really need to focus on action. Everybody has to be accountable for what continues to happen and action and, and, you know, solidarity and allyship is really, really important. And also making sure that Black and Indigenous voices are centered in this discussion on Black and Indigenous liberation. So thank you so much, everybody. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Well,